This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Producing Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located on 42nd Street, the heart of Times Square, where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway all meet, and where the very best of New York goes out across the country, and which, from the country, from the regional theatres, come their best wares to New York. This is the American Theatre Wing Seminars, and it's but one of the all-year-round programs. We go into hospitals. We send live entertainment into hospitals, into veterans' hospitals, into private hospitals, and into nursing homes and aid centers for both the patients and the staff. We also go into public schools. Saturday Theatre for Children program is a wonderful program. It's where it all begins. Children line up on a Saturday morning, they buy a ticket to go to the theater, to go see live theater, but it's right in their own school. There they are learning the habit of what it is to make a commitment to go to the theater. Not just because it's a big show or a big anniversary or a big birthday, because it's part of their lives. And we hope we are producing the audience of the future. We've seen great signs of it already. We're perhaps best known for the Tony Awards. It was created in the honor of Antoinette Perry, a woman who believed in preparing for the theater. And the award is not for most sold-out theater, the best reviews, but it's for having achieved a degree of excellence in the craft of theater. And these seminars are trying to instill just that. We are trying to give you an insight into what it is to work in the theater from the performer's point of view, from the playwright, the director, and the producers. The wing continues to help serve the community. And this year, we have another program that we've added, a very exciting one. It, it's an exchange of students from Leningrad and 20 American students, 20 Russian students and 20 American students, who are studying the American musical comedy at the O'Neill Center. Through the auspices of the American Theatre Wing, they are coming to New York, and there will be a workshop production showing what they have learned and how the Russians do chorus line and the music man and that kind of musical. It's going to be very interesting, and it will be held this year. And still more to come from the American Theatre Wing, which is very busy. I would like to introduce our Vice President, Dasha Epstein, who is Vice President of the American Theatre Wing is a producer, 
and has done a wonderful job of helping us in another, still another, program of the American Theatre Wing. Nasha? Thank you, Isabel. After having produced both here and in London, and seeing so many plays transfer across the ocean, I decided when I was over in London recently to try to bring the American Theatre Wing the best of what is going on in London and producing and working in the theatre in London. Um, so with the help of Open University, BBC, and City University here in New York, I gathered together quite an illustrious group and hope you will enjoy hearing them later on in the season. David Auken, the Executive Director of the National Theatre in London, Sheridan Morley, who is the drama critic for the International Herald Tribune, led a panel including Anthony Quayle, Sir Anthony Quayle, and our own Rosemary Harris, who is appearing there in London, uh, directors Michael Blakemore, Howard Davies, Michael Emerson, an agent, and Gillian, Gillian Lynn, who is a choreographer, and Robert Fox, the producer. They've all worked here, and they've all worked there, and they will be discussing their similarity and differences in working in both places. But threading it all together is their commitment, their energy, and their passion for bringing magic and meaning onto the stage. Theatre, as all our panelists here today will tell you, is not only on Broadway, but all over the world. I am really very, very proud that the American Theatre Wing is spreading its wings and going across the world and bringing you working in the theatre in London for the first time later this season. We hope then to go to Russia, to China, for as the Bard said, all the world is a stage. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Today's seminar is on the production, and we have the producers and the whole producing staff of bringing the theater, bringing the production to you, the audience. Once more, we have Jean Dalrymple co-moderating. Jean is a member of the board of directors of the American Theater Wing. Jean is a producer, a director, and an author, and just a wonderful woman a knowledgeable woman of the theater. <laughs> and Ed Wilson, who is here at City University, and Ed Wilson is, I always have to come back down to, because he's director of the Center for Advanced Studies in Theater Arts at the Graduate School here. I'm going to turn it over to both of our co-moderators, who will then introduce this distinguished panel of people that make the theater come alive to you. Ed? Thanks, Isabel. Uh, I will start by introducing on my far right the artistic director of Playwrights Horizons, the theater at which the Heidi Chronicles, which is the play we're discussing today, originated in New York. Uh, this theater has originated many important plays, Driving Miss Daisy, Sunday in the Park with George, a list that's really too long, but it's been an incredible nurturing theater for new plays and new productions, Mr. Andre Bishop. And next to him, the stage manager for the Heidi Chronicles, who has been the stage manager for Sweet Bird of Youth with Joanne Woodward, for John Guerra's Moon Over Miami, for many plays, Mr. Roy Harris. <laughs> well, on my far left is a very important man in production, and that is the man who is an expert on theater advertising. And as I think you all have recognized, theater advertising needs the greatest creative imagination. 
And a good theater ad, ad, as you all know, can really make a play and bring people to it. And he's one who can really do it. His name is Mike Monis. <laughs> and next to him is a young lady who has great experience in, in theater law. And that also is enormously important. And I don't really know. It doesn't say here how many plays you've been lawyer <laughs> for, but I imagine very many. I think in uh, 14 and a half years, probably about 50. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> and she just uh, takes care of making sure that everything is legal. And, uh, and her name, and she's a very pretty girl, is Marsha Brooks. My mother thanks you. <laughs> and right next to me is the man in production, and he is the producer. And he is, was very instrumental in bringing the Heidi Chronicles to Broadway with the Schubert's. And uh, I am going to later ask you a lot of questions about that. But in the meantime, I want you to know that he produced on Broadway, I'm Not Rappaport, uh, Doonesbury, and The Watering Place, as well as many off-Broadway productions, James Walsh. Oh, excuse me, go ahead. Well, I said I was going to ask him, so I thought I'd continue okay. and ask him. <laughs> <laughs> were, were you um, with it in the beginning at uh, no. Playwrights Horizons? Uh, no, I wasn't. Um, I came on uh, uh, with the Schubert organization uh, as co-producers uh, after it opened. Yes. So uh, we were lucky uh, inheritors of, right. of the project. Yes. So Mr. Bishop is the one who started the whole thing. That's right. Right. Look at and him. As many, many, <laughs> as so many others, my goodness, since he took over as artistic director, they've had the, the greatest stream of hits, no, I think. <laughs> no, but the hits are really fantastic when you come to think of it. Reminds me of the, in the 20s when Jed Harris had three smash hits on Broadway at the same time. I think since then you're the only one who's done that. <laughs> Look what happened to him. Interesting news, but tell about your um, your roster of playwrights. I think that's fascinating. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, we have a number of playwrights that we work with on a regular basis. Uh, Wendy Wasserstein, the author of the Heidi Chronicles, being one of them. I had always felt that when I went into the theater in, well, 1970, when I got out of college, that one of the problems was that there were a lot of young writers with a great deal of talent and no place to go. This was not an original thought on my part, but uh, it seemed to me that there needed to be, hopefully, many theaters where writers could call home. Uh, so what, when I took over Playwrights Horizons, I thought I wanted to more formally uh, bring in a bunch of writers that I knew, that I had kind of grown up with, whose work I understood and felt I could produce and give them a permanent ongoing relationship with a theater. Uh, in the case of Wendy, uh, we, I think the Heidi Chronicles was the sixth play of hers we've done and it's sort of tedious because I always say it, but these writers don't just write wonderful plays initially and I, I think they need to get their early plays produced well as well as their later plays produced well. So for all of her, isn't it romantic, or the Heidi Chronicles, uh, there were such 
luminous plays as Any Woman Can't or Montpelier Pizzazz or <laughs> When Dinah Shore Ruled the Earth, all of which <laughs> we produced as well. Uh, but not Miami. Miami also. Uh, but I guess my point is only that we were able to give a number of people, Christopher Durang, Albert Inarato, William Finn, James Lapine, Jonathan Reynolds, uh, Ted Talia, I don't want to go on, uh, oh, do. a permanent <laughs> place uh, in which to work, which means that we are there for them uh, in the good times and I think more importantly the bad times. It's easy to, well, it's not easy, it's pleasant to produce something that's good. It's, it's less pleasant and more difficult to, do, to produce something that's problematic. Uh, but I think my theater and a whole lot of others all over the country now uh, believe in writers and are, I mean, people always say that, well, we don't produce plays, we produce writers. I don't trust that phrase so much because I think we do produce plays. Uh, it's just some of them are good and some of them are bad. Uh, and we'll be there for Wendy in her next play and her next play and her next play, I, I hope. The, I, th I think one of the uh, key things in terms of production about this particular production we're talking about in this transfer is the fact that uh, this is now the rule rather than the exception, which was not the case ten years ago, namely a collaboration between a not-for-profit theater and the commercial theater, because your theater, Andre, is a not-for-profit theater, uh, an off-Broadway off <laughs> off theater, and more and more this is where the Broadway commercial theater is finding its material to uh, offer to the broader public of Broadway. So maybe you could tell us in this case with the Heidi Chronicles just how this got started and also there was a collaboration I think between your theater and perhaps the Seattle uh, theater about this, uh, well, which is again another mode that's uh, become more, more and more popular. I think there's a great deal. I mean I think collaboration is the word and it isn't simply economic collaboration because it's sort of artistic collaboration as well. In the case of the Heidi Chronicles, <coughs> Wendy had wanted to work on it a little bit away from New York. It's difficult I think to work on plays in New York, especially when you're a kind of known author as she was to some extent. Um, we did several readings of the plays at Playwrights Horizons and then I'm very friendly with the people who run the Seattle Repertory Theater. Uh, uh, Dan Sullivan, who ended up directing the play, uh, is the artistic director there and he said, would you like to bring the play out here? They have a kind of two-week workshop program uh, where they do staged readings of plays and the author can work on the play with good actors and about five performances. Uh, so I said I thought that would be a great idea. Uh, we went out there. Um, we paid for some of the actors who, who, who were not from Seattle to go there and uh, Dan directed the reading um, and it went quite well and they did a lot of work on the play. Then we came back to New York and, and we couldn't, a lot of directors whose names shall be nameless, uh, didn't, we had talked to about directing the play, but they chose to, to do other plays. And I had felt that it was extremely important to find someone who could deal with the play that covered an enormous amount of time and understand how to f give it a physical life so that it wouldn't be these scenes just clunking in and clunking out uh, and endless amounts of scenery taking forever to <laughs> clunk out and crash into things. And, and I also felt that I needed someone who would give the play a strong and somewhat unsentimental backbone. Curiously enough, Dan Sullivan, who had no idea that he would be asked to direct it, uh, turned out to be that guy. The Seattle Rep is a very big theater and he directs a lot of classical plays. He knows how to move large canvases around. Um, 
he also gave the play real, uh, a certain amount of real political muscle. He was the one, I don't know how many of you have seen the play, but he, he, he was the one who wanted Wendy to, to write those art lectures with the slides that begin each act. Uh, so we asked him to direct the play. He gave up uh, his duties at Seattle Rep. He came to New York. Uh, I moved out of my apartment. He moved into my apartment. Uh, no Milford Plaza for him. Uh, and uh, he directed the play. Uh, we had done some readings with Joan Allen and Peter Friedman, and they were passionately committed to the play and uh, could give it the time in the fall. And so then we went into auditions, and then we went into rehearsal, and then we went into previews. Uh, and it was. It was interesting and difficult. It was a very, I suspected the play would do well because it seemed to me to be uh, something that said a lot to people and also very entertaining. And I felt it was Wendy really beginning to come into her own as a writer. Uh, but there was a long road between that and whatever uh, we have now. The play was too long when we opened. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about changing this and that. It was a, with a physical production that's on Broadway, oddly is almost exactly the same physical production at Playwrights Horizons, which is a theater with no wing space, no flies, no anything, uh, <laughs> but a lot of volunteer help <laughs> that is very volunteery and very wonderful. Uh, and we worked very hard. It was a very hard play to do and get together within a three-week period. And I think, oddly, now it's, it's, got, it's gotten much better since it opened then. Roy must have been. Were you the stage manager at Playwrights yes, Arrasses? Yes, I was. So you must have I been was. involved in a lot of this process. From, I read the play a year and a half ago. And frankly, when I read it, I went to Andre Bishop and to Carl Mueller, who's the production manager there, and I begged them to let me stage manage it, simply because I had not read a play that socked me in my guts the way that one had in maybe 10 years. And as Andre said, it went through a process. Dan Sullivan shaped this play in a really quite wonderful way. And every, all the strong things that were already in it that Wendy got, he simply made stronger. And Wendy is one of the, I've worked with a lot of playwrights on a lot of new plays. She's one of the best playwrights I've ever worked with about saying, oh, this doesn't work. Well, let me see. And she'll take a piece of paper and turn it over and rewrite right in front of you. Um, and as Andre said, it was, it was not easy because you've got a play that covers 25 years and there are 12 scenes, and well, if you count the two art lectures at the beginning of each, there are 13 scenes in this play. You've got to account for the fact that each scene is five years or three years. At the same time, you've got to keep this play moving like gangbusters. And uh, we did at Playwrights, of course, it was much simpler. As Andre said, it looks very similar. It really looks quite the same. It's much more complex on Broadway. I just wanted to ask <clears throat> one question. Are you using the same set on Broadway that you did? Oh, no. It was completely rebuilt. Re it, completely it's rebuilt. It's the same why? idea and the why same design have, idea. Why did it have to be... It had to be enlarged. Is it that had to be made bigger, and also simply for it uh, the moves differently. In oh, terms moves of very differently. Changes. For instance, one of the big things that's different is we have two slip stages. I don't know if people know what they are. They're you might stages. There, one is a downstage, close to the edge of the stage, and there's one above it. They move on with, by means of winches. They can move at the same time. They can move at different times. They can move in the same direction or different direction. And we certainly didn't have that at Playwrights Horizons. And when you're attacking something like that, mm -hmm. it takes longer. You have actors often moving in the dark, running off stage to make fast changes, and you have to work all that out. We also have a lot more scenery that flies in and out. Every time 
a slip stage moves and something's going off, you've got to move two panels to get one thing off and get the other thing on. Did you okay. do what changes you made at Playwrights Horizons? Mm -hmm. And there were a great many there as well. Was, mm -hmm. was that done manually as opposed oh, to... Oh, absolutely. It was and all so, manual. So it was slave labor. So you were, you, you, were, you were coordinating people at Playwrights Horizons mm -hmm. and coordinating both mechanical and electronic things, I take it. Yeah, well, it is... 80% of the scenery at the Plymouth Theater is mechanized. Meanwhile, a person still pushes a button to get it to move. So you're working with people and mechanization. And from one point of view, it's harder at the Plymouth Theater. It's also easier. And it's kind of astonishing when you figure, for instance, between the, I don't know how many people have seen the play, the first scene of the play, not counting the art lecture, which is a prologue, is a high school dance, Miss Crane's high school dance. You're going from that scene into the McCarthy mixer. It's a three-year jump. There, there are 17 cues, and the whole scene transition takes 15 seconds. It's, it's, really, it's quite amazing when you see all that happens and all that moves, and you're going on a two-year period, and it happens in that amount of time. That's very interesting. Where at the, in terms of the process, uh, once it had arrived at Playwrights Horizons and was a success at Playwrights Horizons, it got very good reviews there, what was the next step in terms of the transfer to Broadway? Uh, who came into the picture? What, at what point did the did the Schuberts and you well, come I think in? probably uh, I hate to continually throw this back to Andre, but uh, I think <laughs> I have to because uh, <laughs> no. I, the, the, the Schuberts and other theater owners and producers were uh, all anxious to be involved with it. And Do you, uh, did they bid for it in the sense that we have a property bid? Well, for uh, you'll have to speak for that. Uh, well, uh, I don't know. I came in on the good times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of the fighting was over. I think a lot I just of wondered how you, what's the process of people of, were uh, very interested in the play. Well. You know, it's very dangerous now. I, I firmly believe that nonprofit theaters and commercial managements should work together when the time is right for them to work mm -hmm. together. But I do not believe that they should make arrangements ahead of time about anything. This is very hard to do in New York City because. We are the only city in the world, well, in the world, in the country that has the commercial theater and the not-for-profit theater working in the same city. I felt... Yeah, but in London. Yes, but I think things are different there. I, uh, well, I, I won't stop you, but go on. <laughs> I think that... I don't know how you can work together, and then when it comes to time to uh, now the baby is born, then decide which one is going to father it. I don't know how you well, you do pick that. the. You're, if you're lucky enough to be in that position, you pick the best father. Uh, there's some undeserving. <laughs> what about the one? <laughs> All right. Well, weren't there? There really are many concrete things that we can discuss. One is the is the physical theater itself. Well, we uh, and uh, I mean the location of the Plymouth, the size of the Plymouth. Mm -hmm were all, I'm sure, crucial in terms of this decision from your standpoint. We were standpoint. very lucky because a lot of producers wanted to move the play, and that's something that, you know, very rarely <laughs> happens. Right. Uh, and after speaking with a number of people, I mean, it, it was my, I mean, we owned the play, and it was, I felt it was my job to, to for better or worse, to find the, the, not only the best theater for the play, but the best set of producers who would be most compatible with Playwrights Horizons and with the author and director. Uh, Wendy's, uh, you know, probably the nicest person in the world and among the more talented ones. And she's, I feel as an author, almost overly anxious to please and be ingratiating. And I do know there are some people in life who could stop on that and terrorize her because she's so darn nice. So 
after talking to a lot of people, it wasn't so much that there was a bidding. Uh, no one offered me jewels or limousines or money, though I would have taken any of them. Uh, uh, but um, the Schubert organization, I think, were very serious about the play uh, and loved it. Um, they have wonderful theaters, and Jim Walsh came in. He, he had worked very successfully with Dan Sullivan, uh, who is not in New York all the time, and I felt his presence on the team would be great because he knew Dan, and in some ways when Dan wasn't here, he knew what Dan would want to have happen in his absence. Could I ask, uh, <coughs> uh, Marsha, if uh, you came into the picture now? You know, I'm very interested in the legal part of moving a theater from nonprofit to Broadway. Well, the first thing you have to remember is that as soon as you start and someone announces they want to move it, you're already behind. You're already late. Uh, because the show is up and plans are being made and dates are being set. And you really have to, from the outset, review all of the prior legal arrangements. And then you have to fit in the deals that have been made, which is usually the preliminary deal with the not-for-profit theater. You go from there to having the commercial producer make his or her own arrangements, legal arrangements, with each, uh, with each uh, creative element and, and the personnel and so forth and like that. Uh, it usually, uh, you know what your deadlines are because dates are set almost uh, immediately as soon as the deal has been negotiated by the producers usually, sometimes in conjunction with the lawyers, sometimes not, sometimes uh, they just come back to you and advise you and you throw some numbers around and see what makes sense. The other part of it, which is very important and is all tied into the timing, is the financing. How it's going to happen, because you have, Jim will tell us uh, about how far in advance you have to have bids for scenery, redesigning, and so forth. Uh, also, inevitably, productions are upgraded from not-for-profit to Broadway theaters and have to be adapted for the Broadway stage, and that requires uh, a lot of additional planning and it has to happen very fast. So the best way to do it is to get the best professional group around you and everybody has to work together. Did you represent the producers in this? Yes, uh, I in, did. In this? Would, would the, the, the contracts that you wrote and the, mm -hmm. the arrangements that you made, mm -hmm. would they be different in a case like this where you're dealing with an, a production that's already opened and that in effect is owned by a not-for-profit theater from, as opposed to a play that was brought to a producer without that kind of affiliation and prior history? Would, the, would it make it different in terms of your arrangements? Well, it is different in the sense that in addition to all the usual work that you would do, you add the arrangement that you're going to make with the not-for-profit theater. And then on top of that, you must examine any and all legal arrangements that the not-for-profit theater made and also, very important, to consider the union requirements that the not-for-profit theater was subject to. Now, some people don't realize this. That's where you have to read all the small print in the collective bargaining agreements, uh, which is uh, what the not-for-profit theaters have to agree to by virtue of their collective bargaining agreements as to what happens if the play moves and where it moves to. Before we get completely into the Broadway side of this thing, yes. could I ask just a little bit about the difference in costs, running costs and mounting costs, maybe not in, in total dollars, between what it would cost to run this play at Playwrights Horizons on a weekly basis in terms of actors' salaries, advertising costs, as opposed to what it costs now that it's at the Plymouth Theatre on Broadway. Well, the, I think the difference is enormous. Uh, my memory, uh, I don't quite remember, Jim, was that I think it cost us about $135,000 uh, to produce it at Playwrights Horizons. Um, 
in that we factor in running costs as well as the costs of the initial sets, costumes, and so forth. Uh, the weekly, I think the operating costs were around, depending on how much we advertised, but we didn't much because the play, the run was sold out totally, about, I'm trying to think, maybe $14,000 a, a week. And that includes actor salaries, Roy's salary, mm, yes. everything. It includes everything. <laughs> Uh, it's a favored nation's contract, which means uh, everyone gets paid the same amount, uh, the actors, and so forth. Uh, and then now the, the weekly costs on, on Broadway. Well, that wouldn't even cover our stagehand bills. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> our weekly uh, costs on Broadway are around 135000 and it cost uh, 940000 to make the transfer. Producing package. Almost That's right. Million. Almost a million dollars transfer it from 42nd to 45th. What I was saying is that per week you have to pay what Playwrights Horizons paid to mount the whole show. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's to break even. That's to break right. even. Is your cost so low as compared to that because of this favored nation clause, because of your agreement with unions, and because uh, of. Partly this it's also that we. We only have 150 seats, and uh, we have tried desperately to keep our ticket prices low. Single tickets at my theater are $24, and if you are a subscriber, we have, in a moment of madness, reduced all our prices two years ago so you can subscribe to Playwrights Horizons for $10 a seat, which is See, unbelievably low. One of the differences is when we, when we did the show at Playwrights Horizons, there were, in addition to the eight actors and two stage managers, there were seven people backstage who moved all the scenery, all the props, did the costume changes, did the wigs. They made, I think, around $200 a week a piece. Mm -hmm. Now that we've moved and it's much bigger, we have 19 IATSE stagehands, and that includes costumers and wig people and sound operators and wench operators, and they don't make $200 a week. No, yeah. It, it makes for a huge difference in the operating cost per week. And you consider also that while we were there, Andre said the actors and stage managers were on a favored nation's contract, which means that all the actors make the same amount of money. I think it's $325. Now that we've moved, the actors don't make $325 anymore. I don't, it's not favored no, nations. Um, I should also say the one thing, though. This sounds all very glorious and cheap, but the, what is not factored into that $14,000 a week running cost are the costs of running Playwrights Horizons, yes. which costs about five or six thousand dollars a day to keep the doors open. And so that in other words, the salaries of the staff support the general management, the box office, the electricity, the people who work at my theater, they are on full year-round salaries and those costs are not included. And also what would be the theater rent too. Exactly. Would be factored So that in that fourteen thousand dollars is simply direct production costs. How, how much of a percentage is your subscription audience? When you say that you madness you offered ten dollars a ticket, do you have a of your hundred percent? Do you have seventy-five percent subscription? Uh, the rest for the box basic office? run of the play, which was five weeks or six weeks, uh, we play virtually ninety-eight uh, percent of capacity. Then, mm -hmm. when we extended it, of course, it went on single ticket sales. Uh, but during the year, not Heidi's, but during the year, what is your subscription base? Well, we have about uh, almost 6,000 subscribers, which isn't that many, really. But for a 150-seat house, For a 150-seat house, we're, we're always full, which is just It's a great. lot of people. <laughs> nice tribute Jim, to what, what you about do. When, you, when, we did, when we do come to the point where you're moving to Broadway, <coughs> and Marsha raised the question about financing, mm -hmm. uh, and you have this 
whatever, $50,000 yeah. or whatever the figure was. 939. 939. <laughs> uh, but who's counting? But who's counting, exactly. Uh, was this then primarily you and the Schuberts who raised the, the, the finance? Well, it, it, uh, primarily the Schuberts. There's another partner here, uh, Centauri International Corporation, who, who have uh, an affiliation with uh, the Schuberts. And, Did, uh, and frankly, the money, uh, ironically, with all of this talk about how much it costs, uh, it really wasn't very hard to get money. Uh, I think people are kind of standing in line to This is because to it was already an established Yeah, here. everyone felt it had, as I did, uh, that, uh, you know, when you move a show from off-Broadway to Broadway, there is that incredible leap of, uh, that, one, you're not going to ruin the show, uh, which uh, we didn't. As a matter of fact, if I may say, I think it looks better yeah. uh, where it is than where it was. Um, and um, can you do the business? Does it have that kind of uh, heat to it that uh, we can get a general population? And you know, if anybody looks at variety, I think you'll see the numbers prove that we, we have. Uh, let me we're selling you, tickets. On financing, let me ask you a question, because this has become a big issue in terms of getting investments, uh, mm -hmm. investors into the theater now. Mm -hmm. And this is the number of weeks it takes to pay back the investors, mm -hmm. because for some of these, uh, Jerome Robbins Broadway is going to take a year and a half before the investment is paid mm -hmm. back, playing at capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, how many weeks will it take? Uh, 15 to 20 weeks. Which uh, is, is really could, rather remarkable. Yeah, I think we could recoup by, uh, depending on what we do with some additional advertising, which we're in the, now in the process of talking about, uh, we could recoup by August. That's a very Every, good everything, everything being equal. Our equation is very good. If you, if you see a break at 135, and your gross potential is 280, well, you're, you're under 50%. Anytime you're under 50% uh, break as an equation, you're, you're in good hands. Because a lot Which means our bottom end, ultimately, because you're always going to go down, we'll, we'll be able to run this play. Uh, even with all of this enormous crew, and we have as many stage hands as you would on a musical, uh, with all of that, uh, and with uh, really rather good salaries, frankly, for, for everybody, uh, we still are going to come out okay. So I think we, we geared it correctly to make money and to protect the play by ensuring, I think, uh, a long run. What about the advertising? That's what uh, I wanted to say. Oh, well, you, you say it, did you? You say it. You say it. Go ahead. Well, I'm very interested in publicity and advertising. That was my business at one time. And by the way, I miss having the publicity man with us. He's it's sitting out in the audience <laughs> hiding. I saw him uh, earlier. What about the advertising, though, uh, and how, that, how the campaign was planned and uh, executed and so forth? Well, uh, we spent some time on that. I, I, I'm never really, uh, uh, I'm, I was never really satisfied that we, we did it quite right. Uh, but, but I think we got close enough to what we wanted to do uh, in terms of telling the story to the public. And, uh, uh, we had presentations from a couple of agencies, and we chose uh, the one that uh, Sereno Coyne did, and uh, uh, we used it. Uh, it. It seems to have worked, but uh, nothing worked better than winning the Pulitzer. Uh, mm -hmm. And you don't have to say anything catchy, you just <laughs> say you won. Yeah. Who designed your three feet? Who designed your logo? In that? Uh, well, it was done at the uh, agency. And I don't know who there did it, but Nancy Coyne was uh, actually uh, instrumental, and Mike can speak to this, uh, in terms of uh, coming up with the concept, uh, uh, photograph, the, the look. Uh, Tell us so. about that, Mr. Mullis. Well, let's start by saying that uh, advertising is third or fourth down the line uh, in importance of, uh, of whether a play sells or not. I mean, 
obviously the first thing is a good play because you could have the most wonderful ad campaign in the world and uh, if the product is not good you're not going to shove it down anybody's throat. Uh, the public finds out pretty soon uh, when they're intrigued by an ad or a TV commercial or a radio spot and they go see it and the word spreads quite fast that a play is not good. We were fortunate in the sense that we had a play that got good, great reviews, uh, was a very funny, moving kind of play. God, I sound like I'm talking in quotes, don't I? And that was the primary help. The next thing is we had producers who are aware of the valuableness of, of, um, of advertising. And then we had the problem after we met, well, first we saw the play uh, at Playwrights Horizon on 42nd. Uh, my creative people uh, all went to see it. Uh, came back, we had meetings to discuss, well, where do we think the campaign should go? Uh, and then we proceeded to work in several directions as far as, you know, how we can advertise this. Um, three or four presentations with different angles were uh, designed, uh, shown t to the producers, and as long as uh, Jim is not necessarily completely sold that we took the right approach, I could also say sometimes producers don't pick the right approach. You know, it's, it's give and take time. And um, one of the campaigns we designed, of course, is the one that we, that we went for, that everybody went for. And the idea behind it was how do we differentiate this play from any other play that's on Broadway? And since the play does play, take place over 25 years, it is basically about one person and the people that come into her lives, which would be Heidi, the character that Joan Allen plays. And we, the idea came, well, what's special about her? You know, is, there, is she one in a million, so to speak? That line's missing on the, on the poster. There's a copy line that goes with that uh, uh, one in a million. Uh, and we picked her out of the crowd, just the way Heidi, in her own way, in her own life on stage, is a face in the crowd that had to be picked out and her life told. Uh, we used that in our print campaign. We used it in our three sheets, which you're seeing part of it over there. That is currently on the uh, suburban railroads platforms throughout um, the corridors that go up to Boston, out to the Hamptons, down to Washington, um, all through Connecticut, etc. Uh, we also have it in the New York subways, uh, the same three sheet. It's our window card, which today the window card doesn't serve that much purpose because it's, um, it's not exposed anywhere. It's basically hanging in my office, uh, producer's <laughs> office and several brokers who are on the street or in the hotel, so if you walk into a broker or a hotel, you might see it there. Otherwise, the only thing you'll be exposed to on outdoor would be, would be the three-sheet. We utilize the same theme in the uh, ad campaign. We also felt we needed reinforcement. Um, we ran our first ad the first week in February, and I believe we moved March 9th? No, March 1st with the March first, first performance. So the ad ran approximately four or five weeks ahead in time to give people uh, uh, time to order their tickets or go to the box office. We did have a big advantage 
on the sold-out success that would have been at Playwrights Horizon. Um, but we also felt we needed insurance for the newspaper campaign so that just prior to uh, moving to Broadway, we designed a radio campaign. Now, the campaign was not exactly like the uh, poster. There we wanted to do something to jolt that radio audience out who is bombarded with commercials from not just food and cigarettes, not cigarettes, but every other kind of product, as well as many, many shows. So we came up with kind of an endorsement campaign, which most people wouldn't expect to have producers come on the air talking about their own products. But they did. He was one of our spokespeople, Andre Bishop, Jim was, and, and the Schubert organization was. We also played it safe and put a lot of quotes into the spot, too, <laughs> after they had what they had to say. <coughs> and I think, I think the radio spots help. We never really know. We never really know where ticket sales come from. Um, That's what I wanted to ask you. Is there any way of knowing where ticket sales come from? Well, the price of your ticket, even though it is not the $50 ticket, it's lower than that. What comes from a subway bus uh, card? Have well, you any way of knowing how much? Well, outdoor, we really can't even begin to try to understand. All we can say is, uh, with that is we need to expose the name of the show and its, its value and its quotes in as many visual places as possible. Uh, there are ways of checking a newspaper ad, which on occasion we've done by changing a phone number or an address uh, so that that newspaper is specific to, to, uh, to the address. Um, you can probably, probably the best way to check advertising is, is a television campaign because you have specific time checks when the spot appears uh, on a particular channel and um, the telephone service that takes the phone calls is alerted to when those spots are on the air. And they, you know, if it's a good spot and the show is good, um, at any particular moment when that spot is on, those phones will suddenly light up. Maybe for three hours, it was one call here, one call there. But suddenly when the spot, TV spot goes on, you might have three dozen calls in the space of five minutes. So that's one way mm -hmm. uh, of checking it. But um, advertising is, a, it's, it's somewhat nebulous. It's very hard to pin down exactly um, where the sales are coming from. Obviously, most sales from a show comes from word of mouth, actually. We have done surveys. We've surveyed at the theaters. We surveyed at the TKTS lines. And um, what we have found is that the two most important elements, and it's probably an obvious uh, statement to, to most of you, would be um, that, it's, number one, it's a good show. Number two, that the reviews were good. Reviews are unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because uh, um, not, always, uh, not always every show that deserves to survive on Broadway gets good reviews. Heidi uh, fortunately and deserved to, to get the good reviews and did. And that's very important, excellent reviews. Uh, the third thing that's important uh, and probably equally as important is word of mouth. Uh, there's nothing like having some person go out and sell 10 other people for you. Uh, what we tried to do in the most visual manner 
and the most entertaining manner is to keep reminding the public about the show. Uh, awareness that Heidi Chronicle is a hit. It's delightful, it's fun, it's meaningful, um, you'll enjoy it in as many places as possible. Um, it sounds like a cop-out, but we really have to depend upon the public to do some of our work. And when we get to the public with the name of the show and, and the value of the show, then we get the feedback from them. What happens if you didn't, had not received the wonderful reviews that you had? Uh, probably would you, when do you When do you have time to get word of mouth going for you? Uh, that's a difficult problem. Um, if you want to switch to a type of show that opens cold on Broadway, where you don't have that wonderful advantage of having a, a, a terrific production and reviews somewhere else, such as the Playwrights Horizon. So if you don't get that instantaneous um, appra uh, appraise, um, it takes weeks and weeks before you possibly can turn the public around uh, to accept Is the show. Is there money in your budget for that? You don't know that you're going to get <clears throat> the same reviews when it opens on Broadway that you got at Playwrights Horizon. So well, therefore, do you yeah. have money allocated for time? It's, every show has its own life in the sense that there are certain shows that open with huge pre-opening budgets where they even, the producers will even plan to have a television radio spot, major outdoor campaign, ready to go regardless of whether the re reviews are good or not. Um, unfortunately, it, it's so expensive to get a show on today. As you could see, it was a million dollars just for, for a straight play uh, on Broadway. Um, there's not always that big uh, advertising budget that will enable you to fight negative reviews. More often, the, more often the cases there isn't enough money to fight. And unfortunately, uh, I'll just say one more thing. Um, if you, even if you have the money, there are certain shows that are just bad. There's no point in spending that money no, to go after it. we're not talking about that. Yeah. I'm just talking about those that like I wanted to well, speak to that for a second. First of all, I think yeah. Mike uh, summarized the uh, advertising business in the theater very well. Uh, I think there is a lot of nebulousness to it, and uh, and uh, you, you really can't sell something that can't be sold, no matter how clever you are in your advertising. But one of the problems you have uh, moving from off-Broadway to Broadway uh, is a, a New York Times policy, which uh, doesn't allow the uh, critics to re-review. So here we are with this wonderful New York Times notice, and we can't get it back in the, uh, the paper again. So what you can do in this case, the only thing we really could do uh, outside of call our attention to ourselves any way we could is to continue to continually pound out to the public that we got these wonderful notices from, from everybody, and that's what we did as much as we could. Um, but that, that's a policy that is harmful to that, Well, that can cut both ways when you get a very good review. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, uh, the reverse is true. Uh, I remember with I'm Not Rappaport, when I finally made a decision to move it to Broadway, I uh, really uh, made the final decision when I was assured from the New York Times that they wouldn't re-review it uh, because Frank Rich didn't like it. And two and a half years later, he was wrong and we were right. And uh, this case, we really would have liked to have had uh, the Times review it and couldn't get him. So. You're right, it cuts two ways. Yeah.
Although, I, I think Ed, that if usually if a show is done off-Broadway or in a not-for-profit uh, and does not get good reviews, it generally does not get transferred. Sure. Does Seattle come into this now as a, not a partner but a percentage of because it originated there in, in, in the whole cost? What happens no. with Seattle? You just, uh, they were nice enough to give you a home and it was wonderful that you were able to do it there. But they do not participate. That's right. In I mean, any part, uh, they simply had a relationship with Andre, uh, uh, as he explained earlier. But uh, they weren't really uh, the uh, originators of it. It was really playwrights and uh, and the yeah, ongoing relationship. Do with production. No, but they, it was there. So, that, but it has nothing. They do get a credit. Yeah, yeah. I they see. do in, get a nice credit. In the sense that Dan Sullivan is the director of the Heidi Chronicles and he's the artistic director of Seattle Rep, they're still. A part of it. Yeah. He'll, he's coming but back. But financially, there's no, so. no, no participation. No, I, I had heard that Dan, who's the most um, extraordinary person uh, and selfless person, uh, he obviously earns a certain amount of royalties as a director, and I'd heard that he's giving most of his royalties to the Seattle Rap. He did uh, that with I'm Not Rap yeah. Report, and it's yeah. almost unprecedented mm -hmm. because he's, uh, I mean, but they actually produced I'm Not Rap Report, you know. Mm -hmm. he, he didn't, in a way, one could say, well, the Heidi Chronicles was his own business, really had nothing to do with Seattle Rep, because it would have happened anyway. And I heard that he was giving most of his, the money he makes to his own theater back, which I think is great and incredible. I think it's just set an example for a lot of, of successful playwrights, directors, and producers as well. Getting back to having a great notice and then not being reviewed again, uh, some producers have taken the original review and just bought the space and put it it's in the Times. It's not the same, though, Gene. It's just not the same because the Times requires when you rerun a review, whether it's their own critic or somebody else's critic, that you put a thick rule around it, you have a theater line, you have a phone number, you make sure it looks like an ad, not a review. And there's no question that people tend to believe editorial copy and even publicity copy that appears in a paper much quicker than they will an ad. Uh, advertising tends to lead with their best foot forward and to puff up. And the public has, to a certain degree, got very wise and hip and, and know that we are you know, leading with our best quotes, leaving out the negative parts of reviews, so uh, they tend to, to read ads with a somewhat skeptic eye. We have that problem. When you read a re review that's editorial, you know that's an honest review the way it appears. Also, you had some help that, as you've pointed out, you can't buy. Uh, you won the Pulitzer Prize, yes. the yes. play won the Susan Smith Blackburn Award yes. as the best mm -hmm. play by a woman playwright, and there have been a succession of prizes and maybe a few more to come. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, when you can tie that in with the advertising, Absolutely. it's uh, the type of copy that uh, nobody it was, can... It was a big help to be able to put Pulitzer Prize winner yeah, in yeah. the ads uh, finally, a few weeks ago. <laughs> before you win awards, uh, if you do, uh, it comes down to what Mike said earlier, and I think this is true on any play I've ever worked on, and, and people got to like it. And the word of mouth doesn't just have to be, uh, I liked it. They have to say, I loved it. And uh, uh, it doesn't even hurt to have them say I hated it, uh, uh, because there's always that controversy that sells tickets. Let me ask you about this transfer from Playwrights Horizons. Uh, the great success there created, first of all, good word of mouth, as you suggested. Sure. But it was also sold out. It was impossible to get a ticket. And that doesn't hurt either, the fact mm -hmm. that something is difficult to get. Mm -hmm. 
But I was also, I'm also interested in the fact that there was a very smooth, almost uninterrupted transfer. Some plays open off Broadway and are successful, and then it's months later, or even the next season before they transfer. Uh, do you think that had a, made well, a difference? Th that was actually one of our problems, uh, because we had to go so quickly uh, to meet Dan's schedule. Uh, and to do this, uh, we keep calling uh, this a play. Well, it is a play, but uh, technically it's a musical. It is an enormous uh, uh, thing to put on and to do it quickly and to try to do it economically, as we had to do. We were in many ways lucky that a lot of the pieces came together. but. It was a fairly uh, harrowing behind-the-scenes time. <laughs> but you're very lucky that, that, it, that it did work on Broadway as well as there, because there have been plays that have not, that have yeah. had sold out yes. and couldn't get a ticket uh, for it at an off-Broadway or not-for-profit no. theater, moved right. to Broadway. And, you uh, never know unfair. for sure. It's an instinct. Right. You, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a gut call. That's you say you think you got the, the, you the legs of it, and uh, we thought we did. You were yeah. about to comment on this uh, yeah, hurried it, transfer. It, it, it was hurried. Uh, I had one day off. We closed on a Sunday night at Playwrights Horizons. I had Monday off, and I was in the theater on Tuesday and dry teching on Wednesday evening. The actors had four days off. And meanwhile, there had been an incredible amount of pre-production and organization going on from late December to have all of this happen so that when March 1st came, what the public looked at was bearable in terms of, because it it's a huge show technically, and Jim said it's a musical uh, with all that goes on. I know about the leads. Was the rest of the cast intact, the same cast? We had the entire cast that we had, um, our original Becky Denise, um, could not do it on Broadway, and Cynthia Nixon came in at Playwrights and did three weeks there and then mm -hmm. came with us, but everybody else And so was therefore the same. there was a renegotiation of contracts with Equity and all the other sure. unions. Yes. Is that where you came in? Well, I didn't handle the uh, Equity contracts uh, except for selected paragraphs. <laughs> uh, Jim really negotiated the deals with the actors, and then we would check back and forth as to what the import of that was. Um, no, I was much more involved in the um, in the rights. How many unions are there involved in the Broadway? 14, 15 unions. And each one is an individual? Uh, yes, yeah. And in this situation, when you move uh, cold, uh, mm -hmm. you, you deal with a whole other set of rules that uh, uh, you're involved with. And Do uh, the problem is you don't have a lot of bargaining the union power. Scale? Do you then just accept the union scale? Oh, you have no choice. Nothing. You always you have, have to no accept choice. the union scale. The question is, can Does you just live with that? Does that make up the price of the ticket, what the union scale? Well, you, 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 as I said, you factor in what it's going to cost you. If, it, if our break were not what it is and it were uh, 185000 a week, we'd be charging 4250 or whatever some of the other plays are charging. But our top on a Saturday night is 3750 because we're at this point able to do that. And I that may not be able to hold that forever. Do you uh, think that's helping you in terms of how successful it is now? Or well, I don't think it matters. But it will later on, I think on, we could think. get uh, 40 right now as easily as And it wouldn't 50. change the, the I don't think it'll change the volume at all. We're just uh, able to do it, so we're doing it. Now, there will be a time when we may not. Uh, and then we'll have to increase it. But fortunately, we're in a big enough you capacity house to hold it. You don't need it right now. But uh, if you did, Having a $25 top in a Broadway theater, would that help you? Uh, Not I don't help know, you now with Heidi. None of us have really measured uh, the shrinkage of the theater goer uh, for a, a straight play on Broadway. 
Uh, and uh, you don't know because some of the shows that advertise a $25 top are plays that people don't want to see if they're for 10. Uh, so what you need, the only way you'll ever test that water is to uh, have a successful play and uh, charge $25 and see, see if the numbers your change. Play, at your top, they want to see a play and they want to be able to afford it. So I don't well, no, I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm just saying we haven't measured our audience yet. We don't mm -hmm. know what's happened. I believe that uh, the serious theater goers have declined. Uh, I don't I'm quite know how to prove that. But we're going to have to break for questions now. So please don't go far away. Just stand up and stretch. Have your questions ready, and we'll continue on this interesting discussion of what brings Heidi to Broadway. Okay? <clears throat> this is CUNY TV, Channel 75. We're back at the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, which are taking place at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This seminar is on the production, and it's the production of Heidi, a wonderful play that's now in New York. We had the producing team that made it possible, that brought it from Playwrights Horizons to the theatre in New York, and we're on a discussion right now of the difference in Playwrights Horizons, off-Broadway and on-Broadway, of costs, and how it all came about, and what we can do about making more Heidi's possible here. Would you like to continue? Yes, yeah, Isabel, I'd like to pick up just on that very point about making more Heidi's possible, because I assume everybody here is involved in the New York theater and is aware that the Heidi Chronicles is really an exception today. That is, that uh, there are very few successful plays, straight plays, on Broadway, and I really would like to get a comment from several of you about the problems of Broadway today and what you think some of the answers might be to get more Heidi's and to, to improve the situation because it, there are so few uh, straight plays on Broadway right now. Yeah. Jim? Andre, would you like to? Yeah. Well, I, um, it's so hard to answer these questions because the theater has, you know, changed so much in the past 30 years. I mean, who would have thought Today, in let's say 19, well, even in terms of the mid 50s, you could all answer this better than me. Who would have thought that there would be this vast network of not for profit theaters spread out all over the country? And in, even in my relatively shorter uh, life in the theater, 10 years ago, I never would have thought that there would be such an interest in new plays and in young or not so young uh, writing all over the country. When, when uh, I went to, to Playwrights Horizons in, in 1973, or 74, Playwrights Horizons was one of very few theaters that only did new plays and took in a lot of writers. Uh, in my very short time of working, I, I've seen hundreds of theaters all over the country in a way imitate 
that of my theater and some others that began doing this years ago. Uh, to me, this seems amazing. Can so I, I think we have taken up the slack where Broadway had it exclusively. Can I ask you whether, why then come to Broadway? Why not continue with what you're doing? Uh, uh, well, I, Broadway, you know, Broadway's great. <laughs> I, uh, I, I think that if, you know, we, it's odd to, just to relate to this, the Heidi Chronicles, everyone said, oh, you can't go to Broadway. Oh, don't go to Broadway. Oh, you're crazy. You're going to blow it all up. You're going to ruin it. You'll lose all your money. You know, everyone, I mean, there were very few, yay, they've all said Broadway, yay, now. But I do remember, with the exception of Mr. Walsh and uh, a few producers such as the Schubert organization, practically everyone told me that I was crazy and that we shouldn't move to Broadway. I had a feeling, and I, Jim did too, that maybe this play could work but well. why did you want to? I wanted, I thought it was great. I, Wendy and I felt, how many times will we get this chance to go and do a play in a big Broadway theater and have not 150 people a night come and see it, but a thousand people? Mm -hmm. I thought we should go for it. I, I intuited that the play could work well and could transfer well and could entertain a large number of people because I, I knew the author well, I knew her work and knew her talent. But I didn't know that as a fact, I sensed it. But I thought, why not? To me, it's the greatest thing in the world. I was a Manhattan guy, I grew up in New York, I went to the Broadway theater since the age of five and to me it was, I can't tell you, it was wonderful. <laughs> and the, uh, Broadway is Mount Everest, <laughs> you always want to climb it. It's the greatest. I, I, yes, I think there are lots of uh, there are a lot of reasons. In addition to what Andre said, clearly you reach a, w a wider audience. Uh, clearly, Broadway is still uh, the imprimatur of Broadway is hard to beat. But also the playwright, the actors, the director, and playwrights' horizons all, frankly, let's say, prosper if it's a success on Broadway, and they get money that uh, they wouldn't get otherwise. And no playwright today really can exist on the royalties just from not-for-profit uh, theaters alone, unless they have a mega hit that plays all over the country. And uh, they have to write for films and so forth. With this, if playwrights can have plays on Broadway, uh, they can stay with the theater, which is what we want. But that's what's so hard, it seems right. to me, is to have people stay in the theater. Right. Jim, what do you think about this? Well, I, I, I agree with all of that. Uh, and I think it's rather wonderful to have a play that's about something beyond Broadway, as opposed to be uh, some uh, buried somewhere in, in a little town you've, you've never, you'll never go to, uh, or a theater where only 150 people can see it, because after all, you still have 25, 30% of your tickets sold every day to tourists. And uh, if they're saying, if they're told you must see the, the best play in town, and that play really is a good play, well, then you've done something. I mean, you've done something for the culture you live in and for the theater you work in. And, uh, uh, it, it just gives hope to everybody. What, what's it going to take, though, to have more of this happen? Because this is the exception in recent um, years. Well, I mean, uh, there isn't enough time here to, to go into that. But, uh, you know, I think for, for us to see a lot of Broadway product, it's going to require productivity. And how do you get productivity, which means how do you get writers thinking there's a place for them to be? And you've got to find also a place for producers to think they can be. Uh, so that, uh, they, you know, it's very difficult to go out and raise money now. You just can't do it, particularly with the new tax laws where investors don't get a write-off like they used to. And if you're going to go out and try to find a million dollars for a play, you're not going to get that $5,000 investment from that friendly dentist. It isn't going to happen. So a lot of things have to change. And I think you've got to treat Broadway like Detroit did with, with car manufacturing. I eventually think it just has to be retooled. And I think there's some ways to do that. And, uh, 
Uh, I think there are a lot of ways to deal with the endangered theaters as a, as a beginning step, uh, which would allow us to uh, do plays, very simple plays for maybe $350,000 and have weekly nuts at around 55000 But to do that, everybody, I mean from uh, uh, the ad agency's commission to uh, the New York Times uh, ad rate, to the unions, the guilds, the scenic artists, they have to take a cut. And it's have just not, I'm going to... Well, actually, I'm on a, a theater industry committee mm -hmm. where I'm going to make a, a proposal pretty much like that. So you're one week in advance of, of what I'm about to do. Need uh, any which backing. I think, uh, I think it is, we'll be with you. Uh, I think it is workable. And I don't I think, think it's so. revolutionary. I, I don't think it's a, a problem. I think uh, all of the unions, it'll be fun to watch them look at it because I've prepared this now and I know it can work. If, if, if everyone will chip in. I think they haven't been asked. I think they would be agreeable. I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll sure. see. Marcia, uh, do you think this, something like this could work from your perspective? When are you ta you're talking about having everybody take cuts? Yes. Well, I think that uh, it depends upon at what levels. Uh, we certainly, in the last, I would say, five years, have made enormous strides with something that is commonly known as royalty pools, or as we also know, everyone into the pool. Um, the first, the royalty pools try to allocate uh, weekly operating profit so that if the show is doing okay, everybody can survive. You don't have to close the show. The producer doesn't have to go begging in the bad weeks. That basically over four-week intervals, although there are variations in the pools, over four-week intervals, you see what the show is doing and the weekly operating profit is allocated between the creative personnel and the producers for their management fee um, and the company, which is the investors, uh, the production company that has produced the show, and uh, some, in some cases the theater, in some cases not. Uh, usually the stars are not in the royalty pool, uh, but even so, at the high end, everybody shares, and in the middle, everybody does okay, and at the low end, there is some relief on an automatic way as opposed to uh, having things spilling out of a box and then trying to stuff them back in and, and things spill out. And then the next time someone starts a show, they say, well, what about a profit pool? And they say, well, what about that one we did for so-and-so? And, -so? and um, for a while, too many people didn't realize that profit pools had to be crafted to the individual production, that it was really about economics, that the way to start to see how you could put things on an even keel was to start with what theater you were going to, what your ticket prices would be, what the production cost would be, see what a fair uh, payback would be to the investors at capacity, at 85%, uh, at 75% if you did business. Obviously, if you don't um, go above break even for a certain number of weeks, you're not going to be able to survive. Uh, and that helped a lot. Well, that deals really with what we call the above-the-line people. Um, with the unions, that's a very different situation. You're talking about a very tough uh, situation because most of the members don't work. You're talking about a very highly specialized area in which most of the members are unemployed a good part of the time. Um, or they are employed not in the uh, areas in which they would like to. It's a very, very limited group. So uh, that goes on with each negotiation. In fact, one is going, uh, commencing as we speak. That's a union representative. So we heard yesterday from one of our <coughs> panelists that there are more actors being employed across the country today, more playwrights being used across the country today than ever before. I'm talking just about Broadway and Broadway right. unions. So the, the unions are different as you go around the country. That can be applied to Broadway if, oh, yes. if the concerted effort is made 
to do so. I think that, I think that an, a number of people are really grappling with this problem, have been, certainly for some time, certainly in the last five or ten years, in a major way. And we have plenty of work left to do. Um, the most important thing is that everybody approaches the table in a very cooperative way with the notion that if you want to continue to do this, this is what needs to be done. We're going to go to questions now, but we have a producer in our audience, and I'm going to ask her if she would like to ask a question. This is right up her alley. Dasha Epson, is there anything you want to say as a producer to what we're talking about here? Well, I've been listening, and I'm sometimes frustrated and sometimes very happy. And um, I do know that we are, there are many, many changes going on in, in theater today. Prices have escalated, and there is a lot of product that does not come to New York. And as I said before, theater is everywhere. There's one thing that we haven't addressed, coming back from London and doing the panel of working in the theater in London. Um, there is a national theater there which is subsidized. And we have been trying here to get a national theater. We have a location problem with actors. We have two coasts. They do not have one coast. It's very lucrative to actors and for professional people to go to California, to work in the movies, to work in television. And how do we get them back here to go back onto the stage and to come here? Do we then give them, and I think something is happening now over at the Promenade Theater, that they're having some actors come in on Monday nights or just a very, very short period of time in order for them to get back to the other work that they're doing. How do we go about getting some of the professionals back here, getting new work back here, maybe not having as a producer to tie them up for six months, and developing more of new theater and new professions? I think well said. And do we, how do we get a national theater? How do we get a theater where we've been trying to work on it? It's very hard to do it with the unions. It's very hard to do it with the costs, with the economics of it. I'd love to see that happen. It would give us more. more I think aid. they would, too. Come on. My name is Rhoda Lapel. The question is addressed to Andre Bishop. When you start out giving novices support through Playwrights Horizon, and then they go on to become successful. Is there a contractual or financial obligation they owe to Playwrights Horizon, or is it only a moral one that they continue with you? Well, I don't even think it's a moral one. Um, there is none. I, I don't believe in one can't. I think it, only a fool tries to control an artist. And uh, there is no contractual thing uh, in any way, including morally at all. Um. Peter Schaffer, many years ago, was asked that question when he was on the panel, and he said that he contributed to the National Theatre whenever he went into a commercial operation, something that had started there, 15% of his royalties, commercial royalties. Oh. And we asked the same question then, was this contractual or morally? And he said it was contractually. They all did. Is there any, has anyone ever asked that a successful playwright contribute to back to well, the company we, that mean, made lot, it all possible. A lot of our writers do give us money when they have money to give, mm -hmm. you know, uh, fundraising appeals or they, uh, you know, appear but in benefits. But not as a standard practice. No, I, I, I seem to me think that that's, uh, agents do that and, and uh, unions do that in terms of dues, but I, I don't think... It's interesting. England doesn't think that it's very crass to ask them to do that. Well, the English are <laughs> so polite. <laughs> 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 Uh, How would you like to come up? Okay. My name is Alan Markinson. My question is for Jim Walsh. Uh, you've talked about the transfer of Heidi from a nonprofit theater to Broadway. Now you have a successful run on Broadway. 
My question is, at what point do you consider it appropriate to send out a national tour or release second-class second rights of the play? Uh, well, the national tour, I think, uh, is pretty tricky. Uh, I think we have to find a star to tour. Uh, and uh, uh, I think that's the first thing. I think we have to whip the uh, problem of how do we make this uh, play go up in 16 hours and have a performance on a Tuesday night when it's as big and as uh, cumbersome as it is. And that's a problem that I've addressed to Dan and the designers, and uh, everybody's knocking their heads. Uh, uh, so I don't know. I would like to think uh, uh, we could do it next fall, but I'm not so sure we will. If we, can't, if we can't do something that is affordable, that is, it has to be the right price. It certainly couldn't be for this amount of money. Uh, and it. Uh, and it looks like we have uh, some star power. I really think that's going to be necessary to go out into uh, Louisville and Denver. You really need more than just the Heidi Chronicles. So uh, decision's not in on that. Is there a movie sale on the offering? Oh, I think there will be. I uh -huh. think that's just a matter of time. How does that work? What, what? Well, uh, uh, the author controls those rights. And mm -hmm. uh, so the author's agent uh, feels that. And we, as a production uh, company, we are a recipient of some of the income. Thank you. Yes, my name is Terence Dixon, and my question is addressed to Marsha Brooks. Um, I was wondering if you could comment more specifically on some of the union or other contract problems you ran into in transferring a show like this from a small off-Broadway to a Broadway house. Well, uh, the, the biggest problem is just to, to find out uh, all the unions that are involved and to examine their collective bargaining agreements vis-a-vis -vis transfer. Um, that's, that's the biggest problem, because it, with Playwrights Horizons it was pretty uh, clear-cut, and also we were involved with Sunday in the Park with George, and we had gone through that and so forth. Um, but that's it, because a lot of plays now are coming to first-class productions from very out-of-the-way places. Uh, you just really have to examine those. What are the problems? Uh, you, sometimes uh, do you have to offer the same cast who's in that production the right to be in the first-class production? That's something that comes up. In this situation, it wasn't a problem. Uh, sometimes it is. And also, vis-a-vis uh, -vis movie rights, sometimes that comes up as well. So if you have a uh, very tiny production somewhere um, and you're, you want to plan a Broadway production, uh, then you have to usually make some arrangements with those uh, cast members. Is there a different line rate for advertising off-Broadway to Broadway? Yes. Uh, Who would answer that? There's a higher display rate for um, Broadway, considerably higher, about 25% higher. How much higher? About 25 percent mm -hmm. uh, for displays. The uh, theater directory listings, so the little ABC you mean the ABCs? See, uh, is, is one rate. Um, I don't really know why the Times doesn't give a cheaper rate for They for do it ABC for television. Listings. I don't know why they don't but, do it for um, uh, the theater. Well, for one thing, they, uh, uh, there should be free listings actually for... Um, they also the do it for theater listings, too, for movies. Uh, they do it do they do? Well, yeah, they, they do it, they do it on, clock, on Fridays, Where it is, the time. Yeah, but television every day of the week That's right. uh, has a free listing. Have on the other ever, hand, television, ever is asked? A, television is a free uh, medium. It's, a, it's been a fight going on for years. What's their answer? Uh, their attitude is that uh, you, you, uh, you pay to go to the theater a fairly high price, and therefore uh, the listing should not be for free. Uh, don't question, question the, the Times has some rather strange, strange uh, uh, rules, you know. I mean, to give you an example, 
um, contracts in theater is held by the producer. If a producer um, produces five plays, all that lineage and display advertising accumulates so that the more plays you produce, the bigger rebate you will get at the end of the year. It's not that way with the movies. The movie theater owner is the one that has the contract. Obviously, a movie is booked, uh, in other words, uh, uh, over 52 weeks, a movie will have many, many uh, movies that will accumulate. So they, consequently, they earn a much bigger rebate than the uh, theater will. Very interesting. Yes. My name is Luann Pavlin. My question is for the panel, perhaps in particular to Ms. Brooks. Um, explain, if you can, about acquiring the use of copyrighted music and taped music, in particular for this show. Well, in, the, in this particular show, uh, there was the unique problem that you had a dramatic play with an enormous amount of music. And uh, what we had to do uh, was to, because it is public performance of copyrighted works, uh, that in, in just about all of the cases, you had to get clear permissions, both from the record company, because the, you were duplicating the recordings, and also uh, permissions from the, from the publisher. The other thing was that uh, this music played a very key part in the, uh, in the piece itself, because Wendy used the music to a great extent to set the time period. So it wasn't, well, we can't get this clearance. How about putting in something else? Or how about putting in this song? It was quite specific. Um, and we worked quite hard at it. Uh, we did clear the music, and uh, we have a large file uh, to attest to that. Does it, is that, a very, uh, is that a, a very big cost in the weekly running expenses, what you have to pay for the music rights in this I show? I think in this uh, situation it is. It's, uh, it's more expensive than most shows I've uh, had to do. 17 contemporary songs used in this play. Right. Very big hits. Starting with like 1962 up to the present. And we didn't get the rights to one thing, and I'm still mad at George Harrison. George Harrison would not give us the rights to three Beatles songs, so we had to change that once we had gotten to Broadway and changed music. Who do you deal with for that? <clears throat> well, uh, Marcia does the dealing, and she talks with the publishers and the Record there are different representatives. In some cases, we spoke with lawyers. In some cases, we spoke with uh, music publishers. Uh, it basically started with a lot of research as to the um, the original publishers and also the uh, the record companies who were who were in charge of it. And also because a lot of the songs were 20 years old, a lot of them had changed hands. Different companies were uh, being bought out and so forth. So you have to you basically it's very good to start with the small performance rights associations called their index department if you're having a problem locating that. Advice to young playwrights, don't have music in your plays. <laughs> Next question. My name is Diane Noddle, and uh, I'd like to address this to Andre Bishop or anyone else. How does a new playwright, someone whose work has not been produced before, make contact with either Playwrights Horizons or any other theaters? Well, um, you send in the play. <laughs> I mean, we, uh, I don't know, I can't speak for other theaters, we do read all the plays we get, uh, which is about <clears throat> 2,000 a year or something like that. We have readers, literary managers, and we do read everything. Uh, I believe that a nonprofit, a funded, publicly funded theater has to do that, and we do. It's not, it's not, very little of it is very good, I think I can say. I mean, it, it's a, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of kind of amateur painters in life, and what's so odd is that there are a lot of kind of Sunday 
write playwrights as well. So a lot of these plays aren't good, but we do read them all. So all anyone has to do, whether they have any talent or not, is to send the play in, and it will be read. How did you at the very beginning, the very... Uh, well, it, that was almost before my time there. I think she, somehow or other, when Playwrights Horizons was in the old YMCA, uh, which was connected to the Clark Center for the Performing Arts, Wendy's, Wendy studied with, or was, I can't quite remember which, a member of the June Taylor Dance Company. Oh, yes, we know. I think you know that story. Anyway, June Taylor was a friend of her mother's. That's June Taylor worked in the Clark Center. There was contact with Playwrights Horizon because we worked in the same building. You have a Playwrights Workshop there? We am not really. We do a lot of readings. We have a group of, of different writers than our resident writers who meet mm -hmm. once a week and read each other's plays out loud. We have a very active school. Uh, part of it is with NYU. Part of it is an independent conservatory. Oh, tell me more about that. Uh, we have 350 students. Uh, we teach a lot of courses in management and direction, acting, and in playwriting. Uh, it gets from very general to I teach a course on how to act Shaw which is extremely specialized. Uh, and uh, we have a lot of classes for playwrights of all ages. At Playwrights Horizon? Yes. We also co-produce with the Foundation of the Dramatists Guild uh, the Young Playwrights Festival, which is for mm -hmm. writers okay. at 19 and younger. But your school is at Playwrights Horizon. Yeah. If somebody wanted to, to yeah. know about it, they would write to you? Uh, they would write to, to the head of the school. Yeah. To the school. Mm -hmm. Next question. Thank you. My name is Robert Dillon, and uh, this is directed towards Mr. Bishop. Um, I understand, I can appreciate what you do for the young playwrights. Um, in what capacity can you help the young actors? Well, I, 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 I'm sort of, uh, I'm very nervous about the word young, because it means yeah. age. And Alfred Urey, whose play we just did, you know, last year, Driving Miss Daisy, was a man no, who I was do, No, I don't mean young in age, I mean yeah. chronological age, I mean young I think that performing. the spirit of these nonprofit theaters is always to encourage new people, partly because the old ones become extremely successful and some of them, to say what Dasha said, do move to Hollywood. Uh, I think that part of being in the theater is to constantly, you have to constantly keep regenerating the work. So we go out of our way to see new actors and general auditions. New writers attract new directors and new writers and new directors attract new actors and new designers. It, it's almost organic. Time for just one more question. My name is Adam Kovacs. My question is for Mr. Mons. Uh, how astronomical a sum do they spend on advertising? Um, you're talking about total like, figure, weekly, weekly figure? Yeah. Well, the, the weekly budget for advertising. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it varies greatly because um, certain shows that zoom immediately, you know, uh, as big hits, uh, do not have to spend very much at all. You know, Phantom doesn't have a, <coughs> a big advertising budget. Uh, they're not on television. Uh, yes, they have a lot of outdoor um, for that wide, wide audience. Uh, print, I think, probably one ad a week. So my guess is that Phantom's weekly budget is probably maybe fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a week. But most musicals who aren't sold out for months in advance and need that television exposure and that daily newspaper exposure can spend as much as forty, fifty thousand a week. I have to interrupt you. I'm sure. terribly sorry. It's, uh, but it's on a very happy note. I'm so glad you're that lucky. 
And I have to say goodbye to you and thank you all for being here. This is the American Theatre Wing seminar on working in the theatre and you've been listening to the production team of Heidi's Chronicles and how it came from the Playwrights Horizons to Broadway where everyone is enjoying it so very much. Dean Dalrymple, Ed Wilson, thank you very much. I'm Isabel Stevenson and I'm president of the American Theatre Wing. Delighted that you are here.